Gresham College presents Gene Therapy, The Future Has Arrived by Professor Alan Boyd. When I started at medical school in 1974, it's quite a while ago now, the structure of DNA, which forms the basis of gene therapies as I'll talk about, uh, had only been identified some 21 years earlier. And um, during my undergraduate training, I recall quite clearly, we only ever got one lecture on DNA. Uh, I also did biochemistry for a year as well, and we didn't get much more then either. But I remember quite clearly the lecturer at the end of that, that, that presentation on DNA said, well, um, DNA might be useful to treat patients at some time in the future. Um, how wrong was, you know, it's interesting. Of course it was useful, but many years later. And in fact, Watson and Crick, who um, identified the structure of DNA in 1953, in their seminal paper in Nature in April of that year, actually said this structure has novel features which are of considerable biological interest. Little did they know that 40 years later, the first clinical study using DNA as a basis of a therapeutic agent would be carried out and some 20 years after that, the first medical product, as I'll talk about, uh, for the treatment of idiotic disease would actually receive regulatory approval and is available on prescription and to be used in patients. Now, in this lecture, what I'm going to cover really is, is three parts. Um, I want to give you some of the background as to how DNA was researched and developed initially to form the basis of what we now know as, as gene therapy. Um, I'll talk about the principles of gene therapy and how DNA can be administered to humans using viral vectors and other delivery systems. I'll also go into the details of how these gene therapies have been developed to treat various diseases and clinical indications and finally give you some uh, good examples of specific gene-based therapies and how they've been developed and are now being utilised for the benefit of patients. So gene therapy, actually, the ideas originally go back quite a long way. And in 1868, uh, Frederick Meischer, who was a Swiss physician, isolated a substance from the nuclei of cells, which he called nucleon. Today, we know that as nucleic acid and clearly forms the basis of DNA, namely deoxyribonucleic acid. And around this same time, Gregor Mendel, who was the father of genetics, uh, finished a series of experiments um, with pea plants and showed that certain traits in peas, um, their shapes and their colours, were inherited in different packages. He used that term in the papers. And these packages are, are what we now call genes. Now, the connection between nucleic acid and genes was not known for a long time, until really in the, the 1940s, when several people were working on it. But one doctor in particular, Dr Oswald Avery, over in, uh, in New York, uh, managed to transfer the ability to cause disease from one strain of a harmful bacteria into a harmless bacteria. And that harmless bacteria then became harmful. And not only was he able to do that, but that those bacteria that he'd transferred that property um, then could pass that on to their offspring. So what was transferred, it was then confirmed, was nucleic acid and confirmed that genes were made up of nucleic acid from that, that piece of work. So it really was quite important. Now, in terms of the structure of DNA, uh, people have been working at this for, for quite a while. 
Um, and in the, the late 1940s, again, scientists were aware that DNA was probably the most likely molecule of life, but nobody knew what it looked like. And several people put forward theories, and people like uh, Linus Pauling um, published a paper, he was, he was a chemist, um, that actually DNA was probably a triple helix. And Watson and Crick were also going down that, that, that strand as well, thinking there was probably a, a triple helix. But in the work that they did, with, uh, particularly with uh, Maurice Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin at, the, at King's College, uh, the work they were doing using X-ray diffraction techniques, they were able to identify that actually DNA was a double strand, has a double-stranded structure, and I'll talk a bit more about that. And I just really show on here, um, there's pictures, this, this appeared really from the, uh, the archives here, how they built it with chemistry equipment, with clamps and... Uh, those of you who did chemistry in those days with clamps and uh, retorts and things, that's how they built it. This is a picture, the famous picture of X-ray 51 that Rosalind Franklin developed. Um, and they got the idea from, the from this structure here, this, and the way it crossed in the middle, that it could only be being held up really by a, a, a double helix and not the triple helix. Of course, there was a lot of debate because... Uh, Watson and Crick and Maurice Wilkins did get the Nobel Prize subsequently, but Rosalind Franklin was missed out. And uh, that's caused quite a lot of problems since then because of, of, what, of the contribution she made. Now, what, what about DNA? What is it? Well, it's a very large molecule to start with, and it actually contains the instructions that an organism needs to develop, uh, live and reproduce. And it also determines what we all look like, and also we know now that it determines what diseases we may develop as an individual and as a family. The instructions are found in every cell, uh, most every cell, being passed down from parents to children. So as I say, I have high blood pressure and one or two other things. I just chose the wrong parents, basically. Um, now DNA is, itself is made up of smaller molecules called nucleotides. And each nucleotide has a phosphate group, a sugar group, and a nitrogen base. That's important because there are four types of nitrogen bases, adenine, uh, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. And it's this order that, uh, of these bases that determines the DNA instructions, or what we call the genetic code. And a specific sequence of that DNA uh, forms a gene. And if you get a, if I just flip back to the uh, previous slide, you can see on here, I've just, just used this cartoon. Um, here's the, the phosphate um, uh, strand, and these are the, the bases uh, with the four different colours. If this is a particular sequence of a gene, if one of these uh, bases uh, gets inserted with another one, then a mutation occurs, and that gene, therefore, is not the same gene as it should be. So when we talk about mutations, what we're talking about is changes in these base pairs. And you just need sometimes a single change in one of those base pairs to change the function of that gene. Okay? So, how does DNA get turned into what, it, what it's meant to produce? Now, genes basically uh, are used. It's, it's a sophisticated way of making a protein. Because what happens in the cell, and again, it's, there's, there's this uh, diagram here. Um, along the top there, we have a double-stranded DNA. And in order to do what it needs to do, that the strand will unwind. And RNA will match to it. 
um, and uh, so that it's, it's really a mirror image of, of the DNA. The, the, MR, the, the messenger RNA, as it's called, will then leave the nucleus, go into the, the cytoplasm of the cell, and attach itself to ribosomes. And it's a bit like going through a, uh, should we say, a lasagna machine, and it feeds it through, and the ribosome will read that RNA and will build on it, particularly on a gene sequence, those three base pairs are all specifically for an amino acid. And that amino acid will get built up, and a whole chain of these amino acids will get formed and linked together to form a protein. Um, and obviously proteins are used quite widely uh, you know, in the body with enzymes and things like that. So that's how it all happens. But just back to this, this, this idea that if you've got a mutation at this level with one base pair, you won't get the protein that you really want. And that's, that's where diseases and, and problems come from. Right, so let me talk about now the development of gene therapy uh, and where it comes from. Um, I divide gene therapy, well, first of all, the definition, it's the use of DNA or RNA um, as a pharmaceutical agent to treat disease. We're using DNA to, to treat diseases. You can divide it really into, into two ways and in the way that it's approached. You will have heard about diseases being inherited and genetic diseases. So we can use uh, gene therapy and use the DNA that encodes for that functional therapeutic gene to replace the mutated gene. So somebody who's with a, a, got a mutation in their gene, and I'll be, I'll be presenting some uh, cases and, and uh, some of the uh, way that some of the treatments. And you know, a typical example is inherited eye disease. There's lots of children um, that develop, uh, or rather families that have mutations in very specific genes, which is part of the rhodopsin chain. And they'll pass that on from from parent to child, and many of them, depending upon the nature of the gene and the mutation, will end up being blind. And there's whole families like that. And again, a classical example you may have heard of is retinitis pigmentosa, which is a gene mutation. And so we can now go in and change that mutated gene or give a replacement gene to overcome that mutation and therefore correct the defect. On the other side, we can also use gene therapy um, and use that DNA to code for a specific protein. As I said, gene therapy and DNA really is just a fancy way of delivering proteins. Delivering proteins to the body and, um, and, and getting them in is actually quite difficult. Um, it's not like giving little white tablets that we all take with, our, you know, with uh, uh, you know, paracetamol and things like that. Proteins are very difficult to get absorbed through, through the gut because the acid breaks them up in the, in the gastrointestinal system. We can inject them intravenously, but they are quite difficult to get in. So by using gene therapy and DNA, it's upstream from the protein, and wherever we can get that DNA, we might then be able to, to produce that protein and use it. And um, we, the, again, I'll, I'll show you a, a couple of examples where we're actually doing that and producing that protein for a very specific need, and, and that's where many of the cancers are being treated now with gene therapy by this, this so, you know, with protein therapy like this. Now, what about the background? How long has gene therapy and actually been around? Well, the first paper that we're aware of in the, in the medical literature came, was published in 1972 by Friedman and Roblin in Science, entitled Gene Therapy for a Human Genetic Disease? Question mark. And they proposed that exogenous good DNA could potentially be used to replace defective DNA 
uh, in those patients who are suffering from genetic diseases. The first gene therapy study was actually conducted in uh, September of 1990 in, at the National Institute of Health in Washington. And a young girl was treated by the name of Ashanti de Silva. Uh, she had a genetic defect that caused her immune system uh, to be very deficient. And again, I, I've got a, 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 a recent example of this and how we've developed this, this treatment. Um, so she, she had a gene defect. She lacks an enzyme that helps the, uh, her white cells function. So she's immunodeficient. And they were able to give the DNA that replaced that enzyme and started to treat her. Unfortunately, the effect at that time was only temporary, but it was successful. And they were able to correct that defect, even for a short time. And that was the first clinical trial. Since then, there have been close to 2,500 clinical trials conducted for a number of techniques, a number of diseases, which I'll, I'll show you, uh, for gene therapy since 1990. This slide just shows you the number of clinical studies for gene therapy that have been approved since that, that early one was approved in the early, early 90s. And you can see there's been an exponential growth and it's carried on. You might ask, what happened here? Okay, that was the impact of the recession. It's quite interesting because most of the people developing, most of the companies developing gene therapy up until recently have all been small biotech companies funded by venture capitalists and investments and also a lot of work going on in universities. And I think, you know, the thing I noticed was that money stopped flowing in uh, the early days of the recession in 2008. This clearly had an impact on people setting up clinical studies. I think it's the, probably, as an aside, the first time the recession actually really affected um, uh, development, uh, as, as I'm aware. Um, so it's, it's carried on as a trajectory, and as I say, there have been over 2,500. Um, in terms of where most of the studies are done, America leads the way, um, with about two-thirds of all the gene therapy studies that have been done, but then with about a quarter of them then being done in Europe. But um, I should say the United Kingdom in Europe leads the way. Uh, there's been a lot of development there. We, t we take the lion's share of the development and the research in gene therapy, and uh, many studies have, have been done here. Um, so how does it work? How can we get gene therapy to work? Because clearly we can't just put DNA in. Uh, well, we tried putting in just naked DNA. You can sort of get it there, but actually it doesn't last very long, and it's quite difficult to get across cell membranes. So what we tend to use is a vector and a carrier. And for this, we tend to turn to, to viruses. And the majority of the vectors we use now are, are virus in origin that have been genetically altered. And I'll show you in a minute on my next slide just how we alter those viruses so we can use them so they're, they're less pathogenic. Now, viruses are very good. Uh, if you think about it, they're wonderful little organisms because you go on the tube, somebody sneezes on you, you pick that up, you pick the virus up, it uses your body for a little time and then passes on to somebody else. And what we've done is we've actually harnessed in gene therapy the ability of those viruses to go into cells very effectively, do what they do, and then clear off again. But what we've done is take now, shall I say, the nasty bits that cause you know, all the aches. In fact, we haven't quite got rid of all the aches and pains, but most of the severe you know, temperature rises and things like that. Um, so we've, we've really used the property of those viruses to, to good effect. And what we can then do is target the cells in the patient uh, with, with this, this infected viral vector. And I'll talk about the delivery soon. 
And what happens is the vector itself uh, will attach, the virus will attach itself to the cell as it would normally do. It would inject its genome and DNA into the cell, which goes all the way into the nucleus of the cell. It then expresses its own DNA, and of course, if we've stopped some, dropped some human DNA into there, that will get expressed as well. And then um, that DNA comes out and produces the enzyme, the protein, or replaces the missing gene. So it's the generation, really, of that functional protein product um, that then returns the, 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 the cell to its normal state using these viruses. Now, in terms of what we do, this is a, um, a viral vector uh, product I was working on, and I've, I've, I've got more slides about Serapro in a minute. Um, this, uh, this is a, it, we used an adenovirus, uh, so it's the common cold virus. Um, you can stretch it out, the molecular biologists do this, um, and the nasty bits of this virus are what's known as the E1 region and the E3 region. So the molecular biologists can go in with molecular scissors and nip these bits of DNA out and drop in the gene of interest. So in this case, they were dropping in uh, a gene that came from a herpes simplex virus, a thymidine kinase gene, which uh, uh, then um, codes for a particular enzyme, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, along with extra DNA, um, a promoter DNA, and then what we call a stop DNA, and drop that into the virus. So when the, the, um, uh, when the DNA in the virus goes into the cell of the human, they will be reading the viral DNA, but also they read the human DNA. And by putting on this promoter, as if you can imagine that strand of DNA is going through, or RNA is going through the ribosome, um, the promoter tells that strand and to the ribosome, it's a message, in a minute you're going to start seeing a gene that you need to make a protein from. And it start, it's, it's basically a switch to turn it on. So that, that RNA will pass through the ribosome, it will produce the protein and start building that protein. And then at the end of the gene sequence, where we've made uh, as much of the enzyme as we can, there is then this stop DNA that we put in. Um, so it's, it's called an intron, and it's a stop, and it stops, it turns off that gene to be produced. So we've, we've got the, a very distinct sequence in the DNA that we use to, to produce that with a start and a stop end. And we can drop this into viruses, and this is how we do it, uh, really, by molecular biology. It really is quite neat, actually, dropping in human genes, or human DNA into viral DNA, uh, and, and what we do. This, scheme, this next one, this schematic, just shows you how it works. Again, this is an adenovirus. Um, so here's the cell. Here's the nucleus of the cell. Um, the virus will stick um, to the, uh, uh, the cell wall. It will be carried in by, by specific receptors that pick up adenoviruses, be transported to the outside and the surface of the, uh, of the nucleus. It will then inject its DNA into the, into the nucleus, and as I've described, hopefully if we've, if we've uh, manufactured this properly, that will contain the human DNA, and that will be produced, and then produce the protein and, and, and enzymes and whatever we want to do. Now, we don't just use adenoviruses and cold viruses. There are many viruses we use, but the ones that are most commonly used are these four. Adenovirus is the one that I've talked about already. It's the common cold virus. Um, causes gastrointestinal and, and respiratory infections. We've all been exposed to those. I, sh I can't imagine there's anybody in this room that's not uh, been exposed to an adenovirus. 
Um, so we know it can go into humans. It's not, not life-threatening, and we can use it. The next group of viruses are what's called the adeno-associated viruses. These are helper viruses. Again, we've all got these, and what they do is they help adenoviruses get into cells. So they're, 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 they're sort of go hand-in-hand hand with adenoviruses. By themselves, they're not pathogenic to humans. And again, we've all been exposed to these. If I took a sample of your blood, we'd be able to detect your immune system having been exposed to AVs, as we call them. So they're very useful for delivering because they're just like the, they're very similar to adenoviruses. They will go into cells, but they don't cause clinical signs and symptoms because they're not pathogenic. Retroviruses and lentiviruses are, um, are the other things we use as well. Um, the, uh, the advantage of these is that they can actually insert, whereas the adenoviruses and the AVs leave the DNA in the, um, should we say, the interior of the nucleus without actually attaching it to a genome or a chromosome within the, within the nucleus. The retroviruses and the lentiviruses will actually insert their, um, their DNA that they've got from their viruses into the human genome and the chromosomes. And of course the advantage of that, once that, uh, that DNA goes in and gets inserted into the human genome, it's stuck there. And that's why we can use it really to correct quite a lot of the genetic disorders. And again, I'll show you a good example of that. So those are the four main viruses that we, that we use. Um, now, what about the diseases that have been treated with gene therapies and the clinical studies? The, again, two-thirds of the work has been done in cancer. So, and again, using um, uh, genes really to, to put in proteins and, and uh, the way that we might be treating cancer. And second on the list are genetic diseases. But you can see there's quite a spread there. We've, we've looked at diseases of the cardiovascular system, the nervous system. A lot of work now in, in eye disease um, and inflammatory disease as well. Um, so quite a spread across the uh, nature. And I think you know, most people are thinking about how they can use it either to correct a genetic disease or to use a gene therapy to, to treat a specific disease by giving, to, to, by giving more protein or blocking some of the proteins. Now, in terms of where we, we, we tend to use them, um, in oncology, we've, uh, we've used adenoviruses and retroviruses a lot for delivery. Cardiovascular systems mainly adenovirus. The eyes, the CNS eyes and muscles, we tend to use AV. Again, one of the properties that I didn't mention about AV is once they're in a cell, and particularly a nervous system cell, like in the brain or nerves or the eye, and remember the eye is part of the nervous system, they sit there and just don't get destroyed and will just sit there quite happily with the gene working away, producing the protein or the enzyme. So in effect, using an AV and injecting into the brain, um, it becomes a little protein factory, essentially. And as I'll, as I'll show you with the, with the eye example I'm going to be showing you, um, we can give just a single injection. And some of the children that have been treated now with a single injection to the back of their retina to correct their gene defect. Uh, some of them now were treated 10 years ago and can still see on, on that one single treatment. So that's the advantage of using AV. And finally, uh, the inherited genetic diseases, we prefer to use these, these vectors that do integrate the DNA into, into the genome because it's there and it's permanent.
Now, what about the development process? Um, developing gene therapy actually is um, a bit more straightforward than developing um, not new chemical entities, mainly because we can't do all the testing in animals uh, for a start that uh, we can do, that we do with with the um, with the, with the chemicals, uh, because DNA, after all, is most of it, what we're using is is human. It matches human uh, most of it, um, and we're going to be using viruses. So we do have to do some animal studies, but the the amount of work we do is is vastly reduced. And typically, we only need to do one study uh, in animals, um, a, a toxicology study, and we look where the virus goes and where the gene might go. And that's it. So we don't, you know, use many animals, which is an advantage, clearly. The most difficult thing to do with these gene therapies is actually make them. Um, because if you can imagine, I can't show you what, a, what DNA, if, if, if you think about the gene therapy, if, if, if you want, comes as, usually as a colourless liquid. That's how it comes, and, and the viral particles, so it's colourless, comes in a little vial, usually. Um, the difficulty is manufacturing these products. Because if you imagine you've got viruses, you've got that there, you're going to have to go in and snip out some DNA, put some new DNA in. Um, so it, it's a whole process that we have to do. And the, the other important thing, of course, is when we've made it, we have to make sure that what we've made, it is what we think we've made. Uh, because, you know, the DNA might just be being slotted in in the wrong place. So the manufacturers have to do, have, they have to do a lot of work checking on the quality, the purity, the identity and also the potency and to make sure it's all working properly. So that's, that's the complicated thing and that's what takes all the time and the money. Um, I don't want to worry you, but uh, producing a batch of gene therapy uh, for, uh, for clinical trials, um, perhaps 100 doses would cost a quarter of a million pounds uh, to produce because of all the testing you need to do, the equipment and things. That's, that's the complicated and difficult bit. And if a product's going to fail, it will probably fail in the manufacturing. Uh, to do with that. So once we've made it and done some of the animal testing and get it through, we can then get into clinical studies. And again, typically, we don't do that many studies um, because most of the time we're treating rare diseases, so there aren't people around. Um, we can go straight to patients, so we don't, we don't use human volunteers uh, for, for gene therapy studies. So even with a very early study, going to patients... We, you know, obviously, the, the first thing we want to do is to make sure the, the, the gene therapy is safe, that we know where it's going in the body. But because we're in patients with a disease, we can also get a readout from that disease to see if that gene is actually working in that, that group of patients. So we, do, we tend to do quite a small study to start with, typically up to about 30, 40 patients. And then we move into a, a larger study, which is usually controlled in some way if we can, um, which is what we call a phase three study, which is the definitive study then to present to the regulators to get approval. Typically, the, the, the timescales for this are much shorter. Um, you know, chemical entities from start to finish take between 10 and, 10 and 12 years to develop. Um, a typical program, if, you, if everything is moving right, I developed Seropro in eight to nine years. So you know, we shaved a few years off that. It's a lot quicker. Right, I just wanted to show you, you don't need a big facility. I said manufacturing is difficult, but you don't need a huge factory to make gene therapies. Um, this is this, the facility we, 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 set, we built in Finland when I worked at ARC as the R&D director. And um, it was quite, it was about, the, actually those, that floor plan there is about the size of this room. 
Uh, so you, you don't need a big, uh, a big factory. The thing you do need, though, it's a clean room, it's a sterile room, and uh, you need lots of people keeping it clean, obviously, and that's, uh, that's what happens with it. But it is actually quite a simple process and straightforward process. And the way that we make it, we use cells. We use um, um, uh, human cells or, uh, in some case, animal cells. And we'll put the gene that we're interested in, that we've already corrected with the, with the human gene, put that into the cells. Uh, we let the virus do its job. It grows. It bursts those cells. And then we recover those viruses back. So it's a, a simple biological production line, really. And then we purify those viruses. We only want, um, when viruses are made and being built in the cells and reproducing, um, very often they're not quite complete. Uh, they've got bits missing. Sometimes a bit of the DNA is missing or things like that. And of course, we only want viruses with the right stuff in it, uh, what we call full viruses. And again, if you think about when we're treating eye disease, We've only got a very limited space, and we, we tend to put it at the back of the eye, uh, subretinally. We've only got a very tiny space, and we'll put in typically about 250 microliters, which is not very much at all. And of course, you don't want to be fulfilling using that 250 microliters full of empty particles. So we have to do a lot of testing on making sure those particles do actually are carrying the gene. You only want to put in what we call a full payload into the eyes in that situation. So... That's, that's something on the manufacturing. Now, what about the barriers? What's the two main clinical problems do we face with gene therapy? Well, there are two. The, the main one is the route of administration and getting the gene to where it's needed. So you think about it, we want it in the eye, we might want it in the liver, we might want it in parts of the brain or the heart. And in fact, it's a bit like an estate agent. It's all about location, location, location. And so we, we have to work very hard to make sure we get the gene where it is. Putting in gene therapy intravenously will go everywhere but nowhere, unless you're cheating the circulatory system. So as I'll show you on my next slide, um, most gene therapies now have very special delivery systems and, and use devices to get them there and, and special routes. The other problem is the immune response. We are using viruses. Um, as I said, you've all carrying antibodies to um, uh, adenoviruses and AVs. And those, those antibodies, particularly when we're using some of these viruses, could actually knock out the viruses we're giving them. So in some cases, when we start giving gene therapy, we actually give um, uh, immunosuppressants and steroids to actually dampen down the immune response so you're not having that, that antibody response to the viruses that we're giving. Because once the virus has done its work, and deposited the DNA, then uh, we can move on, because uh, the virus is typically is gone. Now, I said the, one, of the, one of the problems we've got, I think, actually, I think I've covered that slide, so uh, it's, it's all about getting to where it's needed, and intravenous isn't useful. But uh, about three years ago, I actually reviewed, um, from the literature and, and um, the publications and the press, the sort of top ten uh, gene therapy-related events um, in 2014. So this is the things that were in development, that were in the news. And you can see this is the things that were sort of leading the way there. Um, and you can see down this list here, down the side, most, the majority of them, needed special techniques. So um, the only two that don't, I've highlighted in green are this um, product uh, for haemophilia, which we gave intravenously because actually we wanted it in the blood 
uh, with a more or less acting like an anticoagulant, uh, gets produced in the liver. And this is for a treatment for multiple myeloma. Again, this is a, a, a blood cancer. Uh, so we, we did what the treatment going there in the blood. But the rest of them, so uh, Glybera, uh, which was the first gene therapy to actually get approved. Um, this is for a, an enzyme deficiency. Uh, most of it's made, at the, this enzyme's made in, in muscles. So what did we do? Each of the patients got 70 injections into their quadriceps on each leg where we put the gene therapy in. And again, they sat there, it was an AV. The AV sat in the muscles and produced that. I should say, we did give people an anesthetic uh, to, to those 70 injections. Uh, nobody would sit still for that long, could they? Um, um, University of Penn, this is a, a car receptor. Again, this is modifying T cells. We use that. The eyes uh, for retinitis pigmentosum, again, it's a subretinal injection, uh, very specific surgical procedure. Um, and the list goes on. Um, we've got things here which I'm going to cover in a minute lymphactin for lymphedema, and also here, bladder cancer. We literally just put a catheter in into the bladder and instill the gene therapy solution into the bladder and it will treat the cancer as well after surgery. So as you see, it's not, it's, uh, that's the difficulty bit, as I'm saying, is getting that gene to where it's needed because if we don't get it there, it's a waste of time. Right, so let me move on now to some specific examples of what we're working on. And the first one I want to talk about is lymphatin. This is a treatment for lymphedema. Uh, you may not have heard of lymphedema, but let me show you this picture. I'm sorry about this, but lymphedema occurs uh, most typically in uh, ladies who've had breast cancer and they've had their lymph nodes removed, um, if it's either due to the spread and it's been removed, or they've had a lymph node done for staging of the cancer, see where it's gone. Now, lymph nodes are part of the lymphatic system. Not many people know much about the lymphatic system. You know, most of the work is concentrated on the circulatory system with the, blood, with the arteries and the veins and the way the blood circulates. But um, the lymphatic system is actually very important because the lymphatic system actually drains all the extracellular fluid away and returns it to the circulatory system. And we have this whole network in us of lymphatics and lymph nodes. You know when you get a cold, you get, a, oh, I've got a swollen gland. That's a lymph node that's swelling up. Um, and the way I describe it, the lymph nodes are a bit like train stations on a railway line. You, the lymph nodes, sorry, the, the lymphatic system has to pass through some of these lymph nodes because that's, that's where the antibodies live and things like that. And if you take out that lymph node, then you suddenly destroyed the train station and the tracks come to a dead end and the, the, it can't flow. So what happens in this case when people have had their lymph nodes removed, and it doesn't happen in every patient, but in round about um, a good 20% of patients who have lymph nodes removed with breast cancer, they develop this awful condition called lymphedema. And you can see here, this is lady, she's had the breast cancer removed here and some lymph nodes. Her arm is probably two or three times the size that it is. And at the moment, there's no treatment for that. So you can try physiotherapy, but it's very disfiguring. And it's, it's very unfortunate because most of, by the time, you know, there's a good survival now in breast cancer. These patients have got over breast cancer and they end up with this, you know, disfigurement. And it, a lot of these people become socially isolated for this. So I've been we're working with a group in Finland in Helsinki and they came up with the idea. They, just, they identified that there's a growth factor and you can see the numbers of patients that are, that are there, that are suffering. Um, there's a growth factor called VEGF-C, vascular endothelial growth factor C. 
And that growth factor is responsible for growing your lymphatic system initially when you're, when you're uterus and in baby, and then maintaining it as an adult. And if you've had that insult of surgery, unfortunately the body just can't produce enough VEGFC locally to rebuild your lymphatics. So the idea of what we came up with with the surgeons in Helsinki and the research team was what we should do is perhaps we've got this uh, lymphatic system that's been destroyed here, is try and move a lymph node from elsewhere in the body, from the groin for instance, transplant it up to the axilla um, and inject it around it with the growth factor, the VEGF gene that expresses it and hopefully it would restore the lymphatic system. So that's what we did in some of the animal work and as I say this gene encodes, it's a, again it's an adenoviral vector and we only need to get this VEGFC there probably for about a month so it really starts to establish the lymphatic system, that's, that's what we believe. Um, so, as I say, what we do is the lymph node has been, has been removed. Um, the lymph node is then, in fact, it's not just an isolated lymph node. What they, they do is actually uh, move the lymph nodes on a fat pad, so it is surrounded by a lot of other tissue. Um, and they'll connect that lymph node back its, with its vascular system back up into the axilla. And around that lymph node, we'll then inject the gene, the, 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 veg, the VEGF gene in the adenovirus, around the node, around the lymph node. We've, we've coined the term perinodal injections, so around the node. And um, from the work that we've done in animals, and that's on my next slide, it does establish the connections and starts working as a, as a functional lymphatic system again. So this is the work from, we actually use large domestic pigs. Uh, we took out lymph nodes and, and moved them around. Sorry, that doesn't show very well on the slide here, but that's with the VEGFC. Uh, you can see there's, there's, there's vessels there. Um, we used another growth factor, VEGFD, which wasn't quite as good, and this was just a marker gene that we used and actually didn't produce anything. And we were able to count the vessels. Trust me, these were counts of the vessels. You can see we got a, a nice... A good number, and also we're able to check the flow with dye to see what is going on. But the other interesting thing was in the lymph nodes themselves. Um, in the middle, sorry, I keep losing the pointer. Solve it up. Um, this was the lymph node sectioned um, that just got the control gene, and you can see the big holes in it. Uh, and really, that's not a very good functioning lymph node. Um, for those of you who are familiar with lymph nodes, we, they have what's known as pears patch, and they have a very discrete structure. VEGFC, sort of, they, you can start to see the pears patches developing here, but in, with the VEGFC, the histology and the, the, the sections through the lymph node show that actually the structure was maintained. We transplanted trans, uh, the lymph node, and it maintained the structure. Unlike it, with the VEGFD and the, and the others, the, the structure started to disintegrate. So with that, we had some good animal evidence, we made the gene, we've done some toxicology, and the, uh, we're, they're just about starting a study. I'm not going to go through those details, but we're now, it's a small study, we're treating 18 patients, we're doing some dose ranging, so gradually increasing the dose in, in these patients. They're undergoing surgery um, to have the transplant uh, lymph nodes done, it's all being done in, in, in Finland. Um, and again, we only need to do a single dose. Um, and that's how it's treated and we're looking at the effects um, and we're, we're looking to see because we can do measurements of lymph flow in the arms and hopefully the size of their arm will be reduced um, this study's running and we're hoping to get some results out uh, towards the end of this year or next year
which will be beneficial to those patients. Um, that's really just a summary around it. Now, next one, Serapro. This is a product I developed for brain cancer. Um, I used to work at uh, big pharma companies, but I then moved on um, and went from the third largest company in the world to a smallest one, where there were three of us with no money and two ideas and some intellectual property out of UCL. And we built Arc Therapeutics based on gene therapy. Interesting, when I was at the big pharma, um, the board asked me to do a review of gene therapy two years before I decided to leave. And my conclusion was, don't touch it with a barge pole, it's too complicated, a big farmer just won't be able to cope with this biological type things that we're doing and, and things. And then two years later, I set up a biotech company on gene therapy. They weren't related, but it was a chance opportunity. So, um, let me just talk then about this. Glioma, <coughs> brain cancer. This is uh, uh, a scan of a, of a brain cancer patient, and you can see the glioma there. Um, terrible condition. There are about 38,000 cases a year, new cases a year between the US and Europe. Um, the standard care is surgical removal of the tumour, so if they can, the, the surgeons, the brain surgeons will take the tumour out. Clearly it's not always possible. They can't just go hacking away in your brain. Um, they won't make people blind, for instance, and it might be in different areas. So some tumours they can get out. Um, this one being in the, in the frontal lobes uh, is, would be subject to surgery. So they take the tumour out and then you, you're given radiotherapy and usually chemotherapy with temozolomide uh, after that. Um, the most recent product that's been approved was a drug called temozolomide for use in brain cancer and it, although it, it, it only gave an extension of life of about 10 weeks. I know given that you know, if you're going to be dead within a year, 10 weeks is very important, but it's not a huge step forward. So what we're looking for here is some way of treating that and extending the, the life of these patients. At the moment, we don't think we can, we've got treatments that can cure it, but to give an extension of life uh, is, is probably just as important. So this is Serapro, and this is the highlights, really. So we developed this uh, for the treatment of, of glioma, and from the clinical studies we've done, and I'll show you the curves with this, um, it, uh, we extended life by an average seven months. Compare that with the 10 weeks of, of temozolomide. So we did get uh, seven months in a large group of patients. And what we did was we added it on to the standard therapy. So all the patients had surgery, um, and they all had radiotherapy, and they all had chemotherapy as well. And so it's an add-on to the standard therapy. So we were able to do a controlled study of Serapro plus standard therapy versus standard therapy alone and look at the difference. And I'll show you the curves of that in a minute. And we did put it all the way through to registration. So I and my team were the first group that actually took a gene therapy up to registration with the regulatory authorities. Unfortunately, the regulatory authorities didn't approve it. And that's another story. But I can come back to that. So how do we give it? Um, what, what is Serapro and what's the gene that we're using? As I said, we have the surgery to, to remove it. I t uh, sorry, I didn't, uh, I didn't really want to show you all the pictures of the, the holes in the brains and things like that, but trust me, behind there, there is a picture of where the surgeon has removed the tumour, and there is a cavity sitting there where the tumour's come out. And the, uh, what, we, what we, the surgeon then does is inject Serapro. And the Serapro, the gene that we're using, is a thymidine kinase gene. All right? Now, the thymidine kinase gene gets turned into an enzyme called thymidine kinase. But in humans, that doesn't do anything. So I could give you bucket loads of it, and it wouldn't affect you. Okay? But we use that for a different reason. So we inject 
the thymidine kinase gene into the healthy brain under where the tumours come out and it sits there. We then give another product called gancyclovir, which is an antiviral agent. That, um, we start that usually five days after the surgery and after they've had the gene therapy put into their brain. The gancyclovir will circulate and when it goes to the brain and when it meets the thymidine kinase enzyme, it gets activated and phosphorylated and becomes toxic. And the only cells that it's toxic to are cells that are dividing. And of course, in the brain, because I'm afraid you've all got all the brain cells you're ever going to have, and uh, you know, that's, that's what we're, you don't grow new ones after about the age of 21, um, any cell that is dividing in the brain will typically be a cancer cell. So we can knock it off with this treatment. That was the theory. Um, and you don't harm the healthy neurons which is quite special. This is the development programme, and we, we started off at the top there with some animal models to show that the drug is working and how we deliver it. We then went off to choose, um, uh, look at the different vectors. We did some tox work and manufacturing and moved on to clinical studies. This was some of the, the animal work we did, and what we wanted to do was just see just how many cells we needed to transfect in order to get the dose right to inject into the bell. Now, I'm not going to go into the details, but by using these animal models and, the, and these rats, we were able to demonstrate that we needed at least 10% of the cells to be transfected with the gene in order to be effective. Below that, we knew we wouldn't have uh, any effect. Above that was all, all the bonus. So that helped us really to define the dose of the gene that we were putting into the brain and the amounts. Um, this is the first clinical study we did, and this was the study where we were comparing actually two vectors, the retroviral vector, because in the, in the late 90s there was, a, there was a, a lot of, shall we say, retroviral vectors were really quite popular in this area, versus the adenoviral vector that we had, and we also used a marker vector. And so this, there was about um, uh, four or five patients in each group. These are the survival curves, and the further to the left this curve goes, the better survival. Uh, each step down is where an event has happened, so the, so the tumours recurred. But you can see with the, the retroviral vector and the control vector, um, it drops off fairly quickly. So most of these, and in fact nearly all these patients, were dead by 12 months. Um, whereas with the adenovirus that we were treating, we had a good survival. And I mean, the mean survival actually is about seven or eight months, but we did have a couple of patients surviving up to 20 months which was a big step forward in this disease. We then went on to do a much larger study um, with, uh, I think there's about 300 patients in here. Similar sort of graph here, and this is the, the adenovirus and the seropro. You can see there's a big difference there. And again, we repeated that with the survival of about eight, seven or eight months, increased the survival. So really quite dramatic. I'm not going to go through that. That just sort of uh, does uh, really summarises what I've been talking about. But it really was quite a promising advance in this disease. Unfortunately, uh, we, uh, the regulators at the European Medicines Agency looked at it and wanted more data. Uh, by then, it was 2008, and we couldn't raise any more money to do the work, So, which is a pity. But watch this space. That's all I'll say. Right. Um, in the last few minutes, I'll talk about now a product called Strimvalis, which has recently been approved from Glaxo, uh, from GSK. And this is a, uh, a gene therapy for ADA SCID. And if you remember, right at the beginning, the first clinical study that was done in uh, Asante da Silva was done in ADA SCID, uh, this, this child with uh, this immune problem. 
And over the years, people have carried on working at it. And a group in Italy started this work initially. And uh, it was then, uh, they, they then uh, was, with, that work was then taken into uh, GSK, Glaxo, uh, to develop it further. Um, the, this, the skid disease, I say, it's a rare disorder. Uh, there's approximately 15 patients a year who have it. It's a, a very specific gene mutation. It's not inherited, um, but um, this, this happens. And um, it's caused by a mutation uh, of, the, of an enzyme called uh, adenosine deaminase. And this is required for the reduction of lymphocytes or white cells. And without it, you don't produce white cells. And so these individuals don't have a very good immune system and they're very subject to infections. Um, and uh, really, which many often, they're, they're, they're dead. Most people, if it, if it isn't treated, it's fatal. These children, they're, they're dead within a year. Um, you'll have seen these pictures of these children. This is known as the bubble children, the bubble diseases, because the only way before they get treatment is to put them in a bubble and isolate them from the world so they don't get infections. The main symptoms are pneumonia, diarrhea, etc. And these children are slow to grow. And uh, as I say, because of the recurrent infections these children get before they're diagnosed, um, they're, they're usually diagnosed very early on in life. But unfortunately, until recently, we haven't had much treatment. Now, unfortunately, that would be, it's not quite true. The, the standard treatment for this is a bone marrow transplant plantation. But you need to have a sibling that you can match and get the bone marrow from. So it has to be a match donor with somebody in your family. And that doesn't always happen. Uh, and sometimes they fail, of course. There is an enzyme replacement therapy. Uh, but this, uh, where you actually give the... the um, uh, enzyme itself, but this means weekly injections, so the children have to go up every week for injections, uh, every week, which is not, not good for them. Um, and uh, this, this new product, Stravalis, was, was developed. And the, the way it's actually given is that uh, what we do is, because we want to get, establish a continued supply of this, is the patient will have their... Um, some, some of their white cells removed. We're particularly interested in what's called CD43 cells. So this, these cells are taken from their bone marrow. So they have a bone marrow aspiration. We grow, isolate the T cells from that and grow those up. We then take those grown up cells and we use a lentivirus to put the gene for the uh, adenosine uh, treatment, um, the adenosine uh, deaminase enzyme into those cells they get transfected, we carry on growing the cells. The patient then has a myeloablation, so we destroy their bone marrow with, uh, with um, chemotherapy. So that all the bad cells that lack the enzyme are destroyed. We then put these cells back into the patient and they uh, should establish themselves in the, in the bone marrow. So it's the same as a bone marrow transplantation, but with an extra bit that we're actually using their own cells, we take them out, transfect them and then put them back in. Um, that just shows you that the average age of these patients, there were 18 patients studied, they're clearly quite young, some only as six months old that were treated. I'm not going to go into the rest of it. The good thing is that, to date, all these 18 patients have survived. They're all still alive that were treated. And this, this work was started a good 10, 10, 12 years ago now. So they're all alive. The average, the average survival at the moment is about seven years and increasing. Nobody's died. If you think most of these children would have been deaf within a year, they haven't. The other good thing is that their, their infection rate, again, has dropped significantly. Before the therapy, they had a severe infection at nearly one and a half times a year. 
and it's down now to virtually nothing, uh, just normal childhood infections that they're getting. Um, their white cell count here you can see have increased quite nicely over the years. And the other thing is that all these children, these are the growth curves that you, that you look at when you, when you are, uh, that paediatricians look at. All these children are growing and going to school and doing normal things that seven and eight, nine-year-old, ten-year-olds will do. So quite a significant impact. Okay, now the, and that's now approved. That's now been approved uh, for use in patients. That can be you know, prescribed in hospitals, it is being used here. So, the last treatment I just want to talk about is a treatment for blindness. And this disease called RP65 mutation. This is an inherited disease that's picked up in children. And um, if it's not treated, most of these children will be blind. It is inherited, it runs in families. Um, so, you can have whole families with this disease. But typically, these children will be blind by the time they're 15 or 16. Um, now, getting gene therapy into the eye is quite good. The eye is quite small, it's contained, it's immunologically privileged, so antibodies and things don't go in there. And also, if you're doing work and studies, you can actually inspect the eye with ophthalmoscopes and do scanning, so you can actually see what's going on and where you've delivered the gene. Um, this is to give you an idea of the problems these, these people have. They'll typically present with night blindness, first of all. Um, my, my son has a friend who's got this disease. It's quite interesting. Um, he only has problems at the moment with night blindness. So when they've been to the pub, he needs help home. <laughs> okay? Not because he's been drinking, but because he just can't see in the night. So he's often staggering along and, you know... Uh, anyway, he's become... He's got lots of friends, that's with us, who take him home. Um, and it reduces visual fields, and again, you can see it's gradually closing in. And so, what I've created here, you know, there's a picture over, uh, I think that's New York. Um, you can see the field gradually closing in with tunnel vision. Um, and of course, they can't see very much, so they've got visual acuity, and it gradually gets worse with age. And there's no, pre no treatments for this at all. So, what we've done is we've replaced this with a, uh, the RP65G. Um, there, in an adenovirus again, inject it, and this time we put it into the back of the eye. It's a subretinal injection into the back of the eye. I know that sounds scary, but you'll have heard of detached retinas. When, it, when a retina gets detached, it comes off the back of the eye, and there's a, a liquid bleb that comes, and the surgeons will go in and take that away and lower the retina back. In this procedure, we do the reverse. We actually create, the surgeons actually create a detached retina. And the liquid then for the gene therapy then gets absorbed and it goes back. So that's how we deliver it. One of the problems we had was actually assessing, is this therapy working? And I know that may sound strange. Well, surely if they can see, it must be working. But the regulatory agencies don't trust you. Just, just trust me, I'm a doctor, they can see. You do need to have, to have some real evidence. So what the company did was create this mobility test. Um, and I've, I've got a video of this. Uh, at the end. And so basically it's a maze. And what they do is, um, they, this is in a, a laboratory, they can change the light levels, and through the maze there's various obstacles. And what they do is they start the patient, the patient off here, and they can get them moving through the maze, and they time them and see how many obstacles they bump into. Okay? And then they can do the gene therapy, and they measure at what light levels they just can't manoeuvre through, through the level. They then treat the, the eye, and then we'll put them through the maze again and see if there's any improvement. 
Now, with this, and I'm just presenting really the main study in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through all those details, but just show you the difference and the, head, the, the highlights, really. Um, this is the time and the improvement, the mean, chest, mean time changes through the, through the maze. And you can see here, these are the eyes, um, what they do is when they do treat. In fact, in this study, they injected both eyes. Um, not at the same time, uh, because in case something goes wrong, but they inject one eye, then about two weeks later, they inject the other eye. So this was a group of patients. They had controls who didn't receive anything for the first year, so they were there as controls. This was the control group who didn't have the injection, so you can see there was no change in their mobility scores. But in this one, with the treatment, they got a significant improvement. Likewise, with their, their visual fields and, and things, that also improved. Um, and on this slide here, all those patients in the control group after a year were then offered treatment. And you can see what happened to these patients when they were treated. They also got the improvements. So that was really quite significant. So it's been really quite important for these children. And now, you know, say we've, we've treated children, there's some of them about 12 years ago now, and they can still see, which is wonderful, after a single injection. So what about the future? Well, we now have three gene therapies that have been approved. I've talked about one of them. Glibera, uh, I mentioned, is this the treatment for lipoprotein lipase deficiency, was the first one to be approved in 2012. Second one from TVEC, from Amgen, a product called TVEC, which is used to um, treat malignant melanoma or skin cancer. This gene therapy, along with another virus, is injected into the, the superficial cancers, skin cancers, and uh, produces a growth factor which then stimulates white cells to come and attack the tumour. And that's, been, that's worked very effectively. And then there's Strymvalis, um, which has been approved, which I've, I've talked about for the ADA skid and the bubble children. So what are the future? There are a lot of gene therapy studies going now around the world, many different therapeutic areas. As you can see, it's come a long way from Watson and Crick in 1953 who just said this is the structure and it might be useful. We're now treating patients and producing real benefits. And the last thing I'll show you is a video. This is a video of one of the children treated in the eye disease. And you'll see them using the maze. And the first time they've got the eye, they only treated one eye at this stage. They've got the, the eye that's been treated patched and you'll see what happens. And then they swap it around. So let's see. it takes about two or three minutes. The Gene Bennett is one of the people I've worked with on this. We'll, we'll describe it. So here's the video. Uh, you're going to see a video image in a minute of a little boy, an eight-year-old boy, who is one of the first children in the world enrolled in a gene therapy clinical trial for a non-lethal disease. And uh, he is uh, shown three months after he received a single injection in one of his eyes. It happened to be his left eye. And in this video, um, his injected eye is patched. And um, what you'll see um, when this video plays is that the boy is put through an obstacle course, which is in the hospital exam room. Uh, it's full of arrows uh, and obstacles that he's supposed to avoid and navigate his way around the course and find a door. What you can see in this video is the boy takes a step and he doesn't know what to do because he can't see anything. And uh, he talks through this video and, and uh, we can't make it you can hear what he says. <laughs> this is hard. He has to be coaxed. 
he takes a step and he bumps into the object in the sign in front of his eyes because he can't see it. He automatically he goes off course immediately. And it takes him a total of 17 minutes to make it through this course. He's got a great heart, though. Yes. Oh, absolutely. On the other hand, when his uninjected eye is patched and he's using his newly injected eye, this is the same oh. child. He's walking through the course, stepping over an object, jutting in his path, avoiding all of the obstacles, confident, and makes it to the end of the course without any problem whatsoever. So how does this translate into his daily life? And this is what is so fantastic. This child who came in using a cane, couldn't walk around, is now riding his bike to his friends' houses, playing baseball. He was on a championship Little League team, hammering objects, uh, playing video games, hitting targets with rocks, maybe doing things his parents would rather him not do, but essentially leading the life of a so normal the question that, is, that we all want to know is, to whom is that treatment um, going to help? What kind of blindness? This treatment um, will be effective for individuals who have mutations in the RPE65 gene because that is the, the type of DNA that is delivered into the cells. If they had a mutation in a different gene, that wouldn't be effective. However, the exciting thing is that the same sort of approach can be exactly. used to intervene with other diseases that are due to other mutations. And there are now at least a dozen other targets out there, several of which are now in human clinical trials um, with very exciting results. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why I do this. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.